If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. Hello and welcome back. I am so grateful for your taking the time to listen to this episode of Back in America. I have decided to edit my interview with Chris Tyler into three installments. In this first episode, we meet Chris. After being a carpenter for a very long time, he is now thinking about becoming a monk in a Zen monastery. We discover what it's like to sit for hours practicing mindfulness. Chris shares moments of doubts and awakening when what he calls a voice helps him move forward with his new life. Today, Chris is a graduate student in social studies. Hi, Chris. Hi, Stan. Thank you for being with us today. Glad to be here. So, Chris, as I said, you were a carpenter for how many years? 15 years? I had occasional breaks to do some other things, but I was doing it either full-time or significantly part-time for about 15 years. What drew you to carpentry? Um, I fell into it pretty much by accident. I, After university, I moved to Thailand and I lived there for a year um, doing some work and came back to the States in 2001 and moved to California to um, be with my girlfriend at the time. And um, so I was just a year out of college at that point and had no plan at all. And um, after a couple months, I moved into uh, intentional community, um, small one in Palo Alto and where I was living and you can work there in exchange for room and board. And they had just purchased the house next door to grow, to expand into, and it was in terrible, terrible shape. And um, so I moved in and, you know, was doing some stuff around the site and had zero training at that point. But uh, they said, oh, would you be interested in helping out and on this project? And I said, sure, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm glad to learn. So as long as you're patient. And they said, oh, yeah, it's fine. Like we've got a lot more time than money. <laughs> And so I ended up getting to do everything over three and a half years. So I did that house and then um, I got married um, a couple years after that um, and had I had started a meditation group in Palo Alto and that's how I met my wife. She started coming. She was a grad student at Stanford um, and she was coming to the group. We started dating. Um, we got married because we were in an actual relationship and we loved each other. And there was some uh, pressure for expediency because of a green card. She was Canadian. Mm. She is Canadian. Um, hey, Jess, if you're out there. Um, she's back in Calgary now. But um, uh, so we sat often. And after we got married, we had we had, had a discussion before that about we were just feeling kind of restless in Palo Alto and we were both living at this community still. Um, and um, I had said something at one point about wanting to work on a farm at some point just to try it out because I was kind of curious. Also a masculine 
ideal that some people have. You know, you get your hands in the soil. It's very honest work. Mm -hmm. There's no smart technology involved. And she was like, that would be great. And so I had some friends who live up in New Hampshire and New England. Um, so after we got married, we actually moved there and lived on the farm and worked there for a season. And during that time, this is all going to connect, um, mm -hmm. we went to an uh, introductory weekend at the Zen Monastery. And um, it was somewhere I had been many years before for an introductory weekend retreat that was fine, but it hadn't really stuck. I didn't take up Zen meditation back in university when I first went. And so this was now, you know, 14 or 15 years later. Um, but my wife really took to it. Um, she ended up, um, so we were on the rocks a little bit already, only like a year in. And she, as we split up, she ended up moving right into the monastery after that. And she lived there for three years. Um, and I had a very personal, interesting awakening moment one day while I was living in town right next to the monastery and after we had split up and she was planning to move in and I was planning to go back to California and I had a moment of doing meditation there one afternoon because it's open to the public for certain times to sit. And I was sitting and kind of feeling sorry for myself because the marriage hadn't worked and I felt like a failure in a lot of ways and was just sitting there and in meditation, the room's totally silent. It's this big meditation hall. It's beautiful. And I suddenly had this... Uh, moment like like my mind got super quiet and everything got crystal clear and there was this voice that maybe it was me I don't know where it comes from someone else can figure that out and the voice said oh yeah you can go back to California and do what you've always done and pick up again and reinvent yourself there and there was a pause it's almost like I'm listening to someone else I'm like what tell me more and there's this pause and then the voice said literally like a voice, you know, and it said, or you can stay here and find out what this is all about. And then there was another pause for a couple seconds and then gone. And suddenly I'm back in the room, you know, like fully aware of myself and something had shifted in my body. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't a feeling. It was bigger than everything. You know, it was not, it wasn't scary. It was a hundred percent certain. And, um, so I went home that evening after the sit and, um, canceled my tickets and everything. I had actually begun looking at master's programs then. Um, this was eight years ago, I think. And, um, ended up staying in town and was very eager to practice then and, and was going on a lot of retreats and doing carpentry again on my own, but really prioritizing Zen. So I did, Pretty much every other month, I would do a whole week of silent retreat there. They do one at the end of every month. Um, and my wife was, my ex-wife was in residency, and we were amicable enough, but also not super excited to be like living in close proximity. And so me in town was like close enough, and we would talk sometimes, and, and that was fine. But I was like, okay, this is stable. And then um, some things changed at the monastery, and she ended up leaving on her own spiritual journey that involved Tibetan Buddhism and things. And um, after that, I I felt like a deep curiosity because there was part of me that said, I wonder if I could do monastic life mm -hmm. as my life because they have fully ordained monastics there who live there in a more traditional sense who 
you know, they're there all the time. They depend on the monastery. They don't get income from elsewhere. They don't do other jobs. It's very serious right. um, and very compelling. And a lot of people think that they want that. And few people actually do because it's, it's very demanding in a lot of ways. Um, and you can try it out. You can live there for a year on schedule just as if you're a monastic, but you're not committed for and life. That, that's what you did. And that's what I did. So. And you figured out uh, that that wasn't for you. Um, yeah, I knew, uh, it's kind of funny. I knew about two weeks in <laughs> to the year, but I was still glad that I did it. Um, the schedule is very rigorous yeah. and you have to follow the schedule. It's not a retreat place where you're there to do your version of spiritual work. You're there to put yourself in the container and then see what happens. So you have to be at morning meditation at five. You can't come to most of them or some of them mm. or coming in at 515. Mm. So every day, everyone there, you know, all 30 or 40 residents, you know, and then the handful of monastics and folks like that, everyone's up down in the dining hall at 4.30, having a cup of coffee or tea, you know, in silence. It starts at five, the meditation. That's how it goes every day. And you did that for a year. You do it for a year. And every when you're in residency, you do all of the week-long silent retreats. So every month, your first three weeks, there's a fair bit of silence during the day, but you're also allowed to talk. And we host people from the outside who come for a weekend retreat or whatever. And then that last week of every month, so there'll be this one this month just like every month is full silence so no reading no writing no eye contact no physical contact with other people um and you're in the zendo meditating most of the day you have obviously your meals um some of which are actually taken in the zendo in a formal style which is cool and then there's a little bit of work mid-morning for about an hour and a half which believe me is a lifesaver <laughs> if uh you're in a rocky period of your meditation you're, yeah. you love everything besides sitting But then the, then the work period ends at 10.30 or whatever and the bell rings and you're like, oh man, I got to be back there in 15 minutes. And What did you learn? I learned that, yeah, that, um, and I can maybe tie this to masculinity. Um, yeah, that, that I carried a lot of self-hate inside. Um, and it really becomes clear when you spend that much time in meditation. Um, I did the math a couple times over while sitting there, you know, sometimes you need something to do in your head and I would figure out how many hours you get to, to sit meditation if you do a year of residency and it's just over 900 if you participate in all of them. So wow. it's a lot of time with yourself. Um, it's a very strong practice. So you're not fidgeting. There's walking meditation in between, but that's how many hours of literally just mm. sitting on the floor on a cushion, breathing and paying attention to that. And, um, So, yeah, I would just, you begin to notice subtler and subtler things about yourself and, and the energy that we all carry that can get really like stuck. Um, you notice how much you're communicating, and this is definitely tied to masculinity and femininity and, and everything, um, the human condition. You notice how much you interact with the people around you in a nonverbal way, which you know, doing many weeks of silent retreat where you're literally not making eye contact. That's like a key part. Like people sometimes are like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, a whole world opens up when you make eye contact and that's fine. Depriving yourself of that or letting go of it, we should say, let's not talk about depriving, but um, for a whole week really turns you inwards, but yet there's a whole universe still going on inside. So we could be sitting like this, but if we've been... Um, 
maybe in the Zendo, like next to each other. Like that's where we got assigned for the week. It gets randomized every month. It changes. Um, you feel like, I'll be like, oh my God, like, like it's kind of new agey and you don't really know for sure, but often you talk afterwards and find out like, I'll be like, oh man, Stan's having like an amazing <laughs> sit right now. And it's because maybe you're like extra calm, the way you walk, the, all the, the, fi- the fine grained details in life just emerge, um, good and bad. Mm. Like you can, sometimes I'd be sitting by the fireplace in the big hall, just having a cup of tea, looking down at 45 degree angle. Cause you don't like walk around with your eyes closed. So you just look down. So you still see a lot and you can see someone walk past and it might be the new guy. He's on his first retreat. He thought it was going to be great. It's three days in and he is struggling and you don't have to know the contents of his mind, but you can see like, Oh man, that guy is, is in a spot right now. Like, there's guys who will go outside and walk laps around the big field. Like, you know, you're not supposed to do heavy duty exercise, but, but you can do everything, but, and there's someone who's clearly just their mind is going crazy and they got to be out there like doing it. And, and you feel for them because you know that you've been there too. And you're in this like collection of humans together who are all at different places and all really affecting each other. And, um, guys carry it one way, you know, or people who are, who are identified more as the masculine, I should say, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we're in the 21st century and things are expanding Gender and changing, also, yeah. but I still often, I think of not, I don't worry so much about men and women and labels like that, but I do think of it energetically as if you're identified majority masculine, I kind of use that word or majority feminine in terms of energy. And mm-hmm. it can be, you know, your biological gender can be whatever. Um, but it's how you're presenting with, with that energetic quality. I identify as, I always use percentages, which is kind of funny. I got it from a book I read years ago, but it it works. Like I think I'm like 70% masculine, 30% feminine. You know, I look pretty masculine and my energetic response to the world is that I have like a natural tendency a little bit towards like aggression towards, um, you know, doing singular creative activities, um, loving the idea of meditation, you know, of sitting for long periods of time, I think is, um, don't take this personally, any women who are listening, because it's not about that. But I think it's a little bit more of a masculine tendency to want to, to do that in a way to reduce life to some kind of essence that you're going to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shows up there in the monastery for sure. Um, I've got a question, uh, which is the voice that you heard. Um, The voice told you that you were going to figure it out or you were going to discover what it is all about, something like that. And what was it? Um, I'm going to be the voice's ally for a minute and say that it didn't say I was going to figure it all out, but it said you can stay here and see what this holds for you right it's, it's one of those moments yeah, yeah. where you're like i'll always remember it exactly but i've told the story obviously like a couple dozen times and now i'm I'm making it but the spirit that was it it was like to see what this holds and what it held was um what i think is the promise of any mindfulness practice for any person is the deeper you go and obviously living in a Zen monastery for a year is, is very deep. Like I, when I started, I was sitting just a couple days a week for a half hour on my own, no teacher. And that's nice. You know, I got something out of it, but it was always a bit of a struggle. 
And then you go there and they say, you know, in a nice way, nope, you're sitting every morning, two periods. You're sitting every evening, two periods, et cetera. You can't help but, but meet yourself. And in that practice, what I met was the fact that as far as I can tell, there is no permanent me. There is no seat of my consciousness that is unchanging and uh, solid and objectively real in any way. Um, I think neuroscience, as far as I know, is still backing that up, which is good. But I discovered that for myself, and that's freaky. Yeah. Because that's not the story that we're usually told. You know, there's a Judeo-Christian idea of the soul, which is nice. Like, I'm not totally against it, but I haven't found it for myself. Um, And to be, to discover that in spite of that, you still wake up every day and you have to go forward in life. We still find ourselves in partnership. We still find ourselves being masculine identified or feminine identified. We still find ourselves succeeding and failing. We still find ourselves facing death eventually at the end of our life. All these things are still there. Nothing goes away by that discovery. Nothing is actually resolved. It doesn't, my teacher, one of my teachers said, you know, the Dharma, which is the word for the Buddhist teachings, the Dharma doesn't like deposit money into your bank account. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get around anything in life by sitting a whole bunch. So that's one year. You discover you don't want to be a monk. Yes. But you learn a lot. It was lot. great, though. <laughs> you learn a lot about yourself, right? What do you do next? Two-thirds of the way through my year of residency at the monastery, another kind of moment of sitting there in the zendo and you know the year is nice because you're kind of protected from the world you're in this container that people tell you what to do and and it's very safe and it's nice it's a good which is good you have to have that for for deep spiritual practice i think but especially after halfway through you start to remember oh when i'm done they're going to make me leave if i don't want to stay and be a monk Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and they're nice about it and everyone knows it there's no and they have really good boundaries because there's zen folks so that you can't be like, mm, can I stay a little bit longer? You're like, nope. Um, so I was like that. So I started in September, which was nice. It had that feeling of an academic year almost. But, you know, late spring comes around. I'm like, oh, boy, you know, I got four months left. Um, and I was like, oh, man, I'm back at that place where I often have been in my life, which is what am I going to do with my life? Uh, my, all the years being a carpenter, I had a fair amount of insecurity and questions inside about like is this all is this what i'm going to do with my life and i was sitting there having the same kind of thoughts in not in a particular way and then suddenly i had another moment where i said again it was like is that me or is it some other voice it said it shift it flipped it instead of saying what do i want to do with my life i suddenly said at the end of my life looking back what do i want to have done and just that rephrasing changes the energy of it because for me, it launched me into thinking, you know, if I'm very lucky, I'll make it into my eighties. If I'm super duper lucky, I'll make it in my nineties. Um, maybe I'm like 90. I will be looking back over my life. I won't be working like I am now, you know, uh, it just, my life will be all but done and maybe I'll have a tombstone that says something and that's it. Game mm-hmm. over. And, um, I'd been a hospital chaplain for a couple of years as well. So I got to meet with some people who were dying and that kind of was probably infusing some of my thinking. And just that moment was 
very illuminating. And the answer was not just do carpentry until the end, which is uh, great, you know, very useful. And it's like, okay, cool. Like I'm down with that. Like let's do something else. Um, and I also felt like the fear that I had often felt that kept me from doing more, you know, graduate school. I always said, oh, it's expensive. You know, I'll go into some debt um, or I won't get accepted or the program won't be quite right or whatever. Making excuses. Yeah. And I suddenly had that feeling of them as excuses. Mm-hmm. You know, you can call them reasons for a long time and then something happens. And again, I think everything flipped, you know, they flipped from reasons to excuses, et cetera. And that was it. And, you know, got up at the end of that evening and went to bed knowing that I was going to do something different. And But you didn't know what? Not really, but I had a strong inkling because the universe has brought me lots of friends who were social workers, including in that um, Buddhist community up there. Uh, several near and dear friends are social workers. They have their MSWs. Uh, a good friend of mine um, had just gotten his, like finished his like two years before, and he's my same age, you know, which is great. So it's inspiring. Like, oh, yeah, you can do this even in your late 30s. Um, I'm turning 42 next week, but this was a couple of years ago. Um, and so the, the precedent was there, the space was there. And when I talked with people, they said, oh yeah, great. Like, you'll be good at this. You know, it's a good profession. You can do lots of stuff. And so I finished that year at the end of August and moved back into a little house down the road. But the first thing I did was apply to a couple schools, um, got accepted and chose, uh, Westchester where I am right now. Um, and have had, you know, my fair share of moments of like, oh, is this the right thing? But it doesn't have that same flavor of the anxiety that I had when I was younger Mm. before making the step. And once again, proof that we all know, but we forget, which is you just put one foot in front of the other. And after you make that next step, a whole new set of challenges will come and present itself And the basic anxiety of life of, you know, am I going to do the right thing? Was this a mistake? What do I do next? Will always be there. And if you let it keep you from doing stuff, then you get stuck with that anxiety, but you're not having fresh experiences. So you're not moving forward. I feel at least now like, oh, like I'm moving forward into an interesting profession. I've gotten to do amazing work here in Philadelphia with other people who are doing super amazing work. And so, oh, the anxiety is still there. Great. Like same as before, but now at least the external world is changing and moving on and I'm moving along with it. That's where we are going to leave Chris for the moment. After a year of meditation, he is ready to move on. Chris is driven towards social work. Listen to the second part of this interview to learn how Chris is now working with victims of domestic violence and men abusers.